0: I'm not sure how to introduce my guest today. I could call her a super athlete, as she's placed first six times in her age group at the Boston Marathon. 2014, her time was three hours, 58 minutes, and 54 seconds. Not bad for someone who was 71 years old and had only started running in her 50s. A year later, under more challenging conditions, she ran at four hours and 56 seconds. She said it was her last race, as she wanted to free up her time to do other things. She's a mother and a grandmother, an adventure traveler, a mountain climber, she's circumnavigated Manhattan Island by kayak, and is a doctor who spent her lifetime keeping people alive. The
1: Supreme Court has struck down the
2: law banning doctor-assisted suicide. Canadians who are suffering unbearably at the end of life will have a choice now.
0: In 2016, when the Supreme Court of Canada gave the green light for medical assistance in dying, she became one of a small group of doctors who chose to train themselves in this new field. She believes that the best care a health professional can provide is to honor a patient's life and to end it on the patient's terms. And she has just co-authored a book titled The Last Doctor, Lessons in Living from the Frontlines and Medical Assistance in Dying.
1: We don't help people commit suicide. I provide care. We provide the service for what people are asking us to do for them.
0: Her name is Dr. Jean Marbarillo, and this is her story. But it's also one that involves you, as this is a matter of life and death and choice. Most of us want to live to the best of our abilities. We want to boldly go and do and be. But what happens when you can no longer do that? Who draws the line between what the individual wants and what we can do?
2: This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Dr. Gene Marmaria, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
1: Uh, Thank you, Tony. Glad to be with you.
0: When I read your book, The Last Doctor, I stepped into the shoes of the patients who had chosen to end their lives and had reached out to you to help. Some aged, others suffered horribly from degenerative conditions, terminal illnesses. Some died surrounded by love, while others were entirely alone. I guess my first question to you is, why did you choose to use the stories of real people to demystify the complexities of that 2016 Supreme Court decision to allow medical assistance in dying?
1: I think because if you don't tell real stories, if you don't tell stories about real people, I mean your mothers, your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your aunts people who who you know who are in your life, if you don't tell the story from that point of view, you will never get out of the abstract. you will never get out of kind of people muddling about whether this is right or wrong, morally good or bad, legally right or wrong, um, ethically um, You have to kind of bring it home to what people really live. And when you can know that they're living with intolerable suffering, grievous and intolerable suffering, that's one of the eligibility criteria for MAID. Unless you can feel that and know that and see that and live that, then in fact you will never get the idea of what it is to be humane with people who you love and who you need to care for. So I have been a carer of people for my whole working life. Uh, And I know and feel and see suffering. Um, And I think it really honors what these people's wishes are when they say, I am suffering and I need relief. And if you can't do it from a person's perspective of who's living it, I don't think you'll ever get the story right.
0: Your book opens with Yolanda, part one. And I wanted Yeah you to read the first part if you would and as you do I want my listeners to imagine themselves as Yolanda
1: I was supposed to administer the drugs that would end Yolanda Martin's life at 10 a.m. there was only one problem I needed a nurse to insert the intravenous lines and the nurse hadn't arrived The mood in that house had already gone up and down more times than an elevator. About a dozen of Yolanda's friends and family, a vivacious Urbane bunch, were gathered in this meticulously renovated Victorian in Toronto's annex neighbourhoods, owned by Yolanda's friend, Patty, to send her off. Someone had hung up strings of white fairy lights. Someone had made coffee. Someone else had opened tequila and champagne and it seemed like every glass in the kitchen was in use. Bunches of flowers, boxes of tissues sat on the large square kitchen island and on every other surface, too. Yolanda, who had a sly sense of humor, had made an upbeat death playlist, and she and her loved ones had spent the last hour chatting, crying, dancing, laughing, and belting up the lyrics to Forever Young and Karma Chameleon But as 10 a.m. came and went, people's eyes started looking to me.
0: So when I read that opening passage, so many things went through my mind. I imagined being Yolanda, knowing I was minutes away from being forever away. But I wondered about Patty, who had agreed to let her home be the place. The friends who strung up the fairy lights. The friends and family gathering to this reality. And then I thought of you. You weren't there as a friend or a family you were there to grant this final wish. And whether it went as planned at 10 a.m. or sometime afterwards, all eyes were beyond you. And I was wondering if this was a sidebar conversations and whispers, wondering if they could do what you chose to do medically, assist someone in their death. And Yolanda, who was certainly wanted to end her life at 10 a.m. but had to wait for a nurse. How long had you known her? How, how do you find your way into this situation and be a professional, but knowing that it's so emotionally charged.
1: When I, when I set out to write the story of The Last Doctor, uh, it was really to talk about the early days. It was really to talk about my experience uh, with what we had to learn and how we had to learn to do this work uh, in the early days when there was really no, there was no guidelines. There was no playbook. Um, I often, you know, when you're talking to families, you say, there is no playbook for how this is going to look for your family or for your mom or your dad. Um, it is your story and you will construct what this, what this ending looks like. And you will, you, do, you will fashion what kind of farewell you want to do. But for me, in those early days, it was all about learning how to do it. So the reason I picked these eight people to talk about, um, in detail, in great detail, uh, was to kind of reference for everybody what it was to begin to do the work in the early days when there was no guidelines. And Yolanda, um, Yolanda came to me um, and she, she came to me on her own, in fact, at the very end of that first year. So we had started doing this in July of 2016. And in 2017, Yolanda contacted me by email and said, I want to see you. I want to talk to you about assisted dying. So she was kind of at the tail end. So 2017 was when I first met Yolanda. um, And I knew she had a very, very, very serious condition. I knew she was uh, a lung transplant. I knew the, the, the lungs were failing. I knew she was part of the transplant team at the Trump General. I really knew she had a great team around her. And I thought I just needed to pass her over to them and they would look after her. And I honestly thought that was the end. So when she suddenly resurfaced a year and a half later, I was gobsmacked. Uh, I, I couldn't believe she was still with us. And that became our real journey. So you land a part one, you land a part two, and you land a part three. Is kind of weaves around the whole story of all of the people who I thought had lessons for everybody to learn, I didn't realize this would be kind of like a guidebook for families to kind of say, can you find your family member in this book Uh, so you have an idea of what it might look like and what you might want to be able to do. But Yolanda was certainly kind of typified the whole story, and that's why she rounded up this whole book um, with her own story about why she sought an assisted death at 45 years of age.
0: And speaking of stories and journeys, what I also loved about your book is that tucked into the middle, we start to learn a little bit more about you. This world renowned athlete, five decade family doctor, begins life on a farm. <laughs> Take us back to that circle of life and how did your parents met? Why did they choose farming? And how did that, how did that, that sort of the fertile soil, Grow into this this wonder doctor and wonder athlete.
1: It's grown into some some wonder three daughters actually. Um, you know my family my family were all farmers. They, we are southern Ontario farmers from sort of the 1800s on. I think my my mother's family all immigrated out of Ireland and um, Scotland. My father's family uh, kind of came out via the south from Pennsylvania north. So it's a long farming tradition for sure.
0: And your mom beats your dad. I guess she's sort of caught in the city, wants to get back to the farm. I mean, it seemed like the farm was as much part of that love affair than anything else.
1: So their farms were there were hundred acre farms. That all of these, all of the farms in southern Ontario were sectional farms. They were kind of basically came off of the river, hundred acre lots, and then the the lots were tied. So they were always hundred acre farms. So my parents really grew up on two adjoining farms, and there was a 10-year difference. So my father kind of knew my mom as a kid. You know, she was the kid. And my father ended up working at National Steel Car in in Hamilton during the war in really heavy industry. And mom was working in the city um, at that time. She basically had left the farm, had left her farm, her parental farm, under sort of extremely difficult circumstances for her. I mean, Stories which we never knew growing up as kids, which we found out much, 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 much later. Uh, but my mother contacted my father so that she could sort of relay messages back and forth to her family. But she was not going home again, uh, and that's what got them together. That's that's what brought my parents together. So my father lived his whole life as as my mother's strongest defender. He was out to make sure that this woman would never, ever be hurt again in her life.
0: So the other thing that was an interesting part of the book when you talked about your life is your first funeral involves your dad's father, Wesley. You had met once earlier. Your dad brought him home to die. And you talk about the open casket in the parlor, a room that you rarely went in, complete with an organ. And two things struck me first is you're so poetic the way you describe your environments i I don't know if you know that, but as you take us through you know patients as you're ending their life, you know the fairy lights the the organ in the corner, I just find that you're you're quite a romantic writer when it comes to it, but the second is that you describe your grandfather's body you had no fear or sadness, only interest. And it's interesting to me whether it's almost this divine intervention that you were just meant to take care of people. And, you know, for someone so romantic in their poetry at the same time, you're very, you know, almost pragmatic or clinical in terms of how you approach life and death.
1: I'm so trained in pragmatism and separation. You separate, you separate however you may feel from what you're What the job is, you need to do. You separate your anxiety and fear away from what you need to do because you need to do it, and you need to do it in a way that that always is reassuring for people because the last thing they need is to see fear in the doctor or anxiety in the doctor. Um, And it goes it goes even so far as it's just. I mean, (laughs) if you've you've been a patient, you know, and and you're sitting there and you hear whoops. You know, somebody's doing something to you and you hear whoops, and you just think, What are they what's missing? What have they done? You know, what you know, and I just think it is such a discipline to know when you're doing a job, you do the job, you know, you explain it, but you do not, there's no emotion in there. And there is certainly never any expletives about huh, or whoops, or all the things that people do inadvertently that Terrify you. <laughs> they can terrify you in a minute. So I, you know, it's a it's a learned discipline, and I actually think I didn't get it in medicine. I got it in nursing. I, I you know, I think one of the first books I ever read as I was a kid. I was a preteen, in fact, as I can remember this. And I picked up a book at the library and it was called The Lamp is Heavy. And it was a story of a nurse who went through training. It was in the British School of Nursing. I remember laying on the, laying on my stomach reading that book and laughing so hard at what this young woman had to endure in the course of doing her nursing training. I thought you could not do anything more fun in your life than be a nurse in training, trying to do a bed bath on somebody with a rubber sheet in order to kind of not let water get on the sheets. It was just, It was basically the funniest book I ever read in my life, I think, at a really important time in my life when I read it,
0: too. Because that time in your life, you're quite rebellious. You know, the defender of the underdog in school. You didn't have a lot of patience for bullies. I mean, you were quite spirited. What it sounds like is that book might have been part of your reason going to nursing. But it also, from what I read, was partly because you could get a three-year free education and you didn't have the money to pursue anything else.
1: I would work all summer to get $180 um, and the tuition for nursing at Mac was 360, and and my father was very clear. I mean, uh, I mean, people. My father was stern, and I maybe thought he was unfair because, you know, I wanted to go to university, and why didn't he understand that? But from my father's perspective, first of all, he didn't have any money, but from from his perspective, he had three daughters. We were all equal. No way was going to get more than anyone else, and my two sisters. By the time I'm looking at going into university, my two sisters were working um, and contributing and paying board. And he said, you, you're not, um, you know, what are, what are you in this family when you can't even bring home any money? to the... So he said, you're, if you, you think you want to do that, I don't think, I can't see why you'd want to do that. Um, but you figure how you're going to do it because I'm not helping you. So it was like, and there was no question in our family about loaning money and student loans didn't exist in those days. So I, w- I was really stymied. I felt like I was up against a wall about how I would ensure that every year I would have enough money to go to university. So, so that's what drove me into nursing. They had, they had the way I knew I could get in um, without sort of knowing that I was in competition for a full scholarship. I just I couldn't risk it.
0: How did that going to nursing school and loving it, manifest into becoming a family doctor. It might sound to people not in the medical field, that's a pretty simple path, but it's a major jump.
1: Oh, it is a major, yeah. And I and I went through Mac, I went through McMaster nursing because my goal was to be in university. Um, and going into nursing was kind of secondary. Nursing kind of, you know, strengthened the fiber of this tree. I mean, I, I think I, I view myself as kind of a pretty... Stalwart tree, but I really think nursing put the armor plate on that tree. That basically said, okay, you know, you're a sapling, and now you come out of this as an oak. Uh, because boy, are you are you accomplished with that training? I, nothing I think has fitted me for life better than that nursing school training. So I'm in nursing, and I end up in psychiatry via a very back door because I didn't really like psychiatry when I was in nursing. We were up kind of in in the sort of asylum um, in Hamilton and it was an old barn of a place and it was a very kind of you know 1940s school um, asylum for the, for the insane and it was not a good place to, to be in if you look at what goes down on on Queen Street now at CamH it's it's a marvel it's a marvel in terms of what's happened around psychiatric care but I came into psychiatry via a back door via my one of my nursing colleagues who said, you know, come to Toronto. There's this lovely job at Lakeshore Psychiatry. I said, I don't want to go into psychiatry, but I do want to come to Toronto. Um, So it was, again, it was a kind of a backdoor approach. Um, And what got me into medical school was was not because I was using psychiatry to get me into medical school, but because the program I was in, which was a marvelous program um, that let nurses just range widely and freely in terms of their scope of practice and expanded, I uh, was closing down. It was a five-year program. It, it had its own limitation built into from the beginning, which I didn't quite appreciate when I started. But at year three, I certainly appreciated it. And I thought, oh, I ha- what am I going to do now? I, I, can't, I can't go back and do regular nursing. I mean, this, is, this has fried me for regular nursing. And that's what got me into medicine. Going into medicine, I went I went to be viewed by the Dean of Admissions. And I was the head nurse at at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry at that point, you know, now Cambridge, but but then it was the Clark. And I and I go in full of filibusters saying, you know, hello, I'm the head nurse, you know, on the on the community psychiatry floor. I want to come to medicine and you should welcome me. And he said, What on earth makes you think? that the Ontario people should pay twice for a medical education for you. Do you know what we have already paid to train you as a nurse? That was his answer.
0: How did you overcome that?
1: No, I was angry. Uh, well, I walked, I'll get to that. But, um, but I walked out quite humbled because you suddenly realize that you think you're doing it all on your own. And you realize, no, you're not. The whole system of education is being underwritten by the taxpayers. Yeah, I was quite, I was humbled, but I was even more determined. I say, I'm going to get this.
0: And how about your father along the way? I mean, he, he went from, what are you contributing to this family? Figures things out. And next thing you know, you're in quite an interesting career path. Is it is something he's very proud of that you're forging this path on your own? Or does he really want you back on the farm? Or-
1: he was proud. There was absolutely no doubt. He was proud of what I have done. And what I did. But I remember um, I remember taking my boyfriend home to meet him, presenting him and sort of telling him this was kind of what we we're thinking we we're going to get married. And so, you know, my father knew that I, my, my ambitions and my drive and where I was heading. And I remember him sort of sitting in his chair and nodding his head and looking and saying to my future husband at that point, you do have to know. She's not much of a housekeeper.
0: <laughs> I bet you, with a wry smile, he said that. Oh
1: no! Oh no, no! 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 My father, my father, my father was not a joker. No, no, he was a pretty somber guy. But I joke. I laughed. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's not. That's never going to change. Actually, Dad. So it's you know. <laughs>
0: That's just so fun. I want to re- now return to medical assistance in dying and because I just I was fascinated by it. You didn't have enough of your personal story, by the way. I, w- I almost want you to write another book about all the ways along the way. But I managed to grab enough to, again, put myself in your shoes. But speaking of the shoes, take me back to the morning of February 6, 2015. And you have running shoes on because you're on a treadmill.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, gosh, you know, you have eureka moments in your life. That was that was my that was one of my true eureka moments. I, I absolutely was shocked. I literally was stopped dead in my tracks, looking at this kylon going across, and I'm not sure I've read it. Supreme Court of Canada nine to zero in favor of medical assistance in dying, and I I, I gasped. I just thought I would never see it in my lifetime, and and I guess at that single moment in time, I framed what I was seeing, that it was now going to be permitted legally to help people die. Physicians have helped people die. Make no mistake about it. But we have done it surreptitiously. We have done it undercover. We have done it on a lateral position. We've done it in so many obscure, ill-defined, in, you know, indiscreet ways that have kind of made it secretive, kind of shameful, risky as hell, um, because of course it's criminal, and who we have never served are the people who have been most aware and most acutely aware that they were taking things into their own hands, that they were going to fashion their own end, and that to involve anybody else, even their family members, let alone me, would risk criminal action and they do it on their own and they did it in secret and they did it alone in fear
0: yeah I'm just saying it wasn't to me it wasn't just the fact that there was a criminal act taking place it was the fact that very often the person that loved that person had the syringe in their hand and had to administer it when the doctor had left the room and i felt so much pain for that individual because you're trained to compartmentalize and you're trained, as you said in the past, to take away anxiety and fear. But walking out of those rooms must have been one of the hardest steps you had to take as a doctor. And I can only imagine the hands shaking, knowing that it was the right thing to do, but I was left to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, mostly they never, they could never get it from me. Any Anybody who had access to barbiturates or anything else they were using were getting it in the mail from America. They were not getting it from me, you know, because that's, you could, that's a paper trail. You know, you, you can follow the, the police, know, know those those things very well. So so nobody would even risk that. A physician couldn't risk it. A patient couldn't risk it. They had to do everything surreptitiously. Um, I remember sitting with a couple who told me that that they would not be coming to the office anymore. Um, And she had advanced breast cancer. Uh, He was a professor. And they said, we're telling you this because um, we don't want you to risk any involvement. We are, in fact, we have made a plan and we are going ahead with this. And we want to make sure that none of our family is involved in it. So only, you know, my husband and I will sort of know what we are about to do. But we just thought out of respect for you, we would let you know and goodbye. That is profoundly horrible and really left me with this kind of legacy of, I would never want that for anybody again. So when I saw that, that the Supreme Court had done it, I just knew it all came together. It crystallized totally for me at that moment.
0: How old were you with that decision when you're on that treadmill?
1: Well, I'm 81 now.
0: So eight years ago. <laughs> so
1: that's eight years ago.
0: 73. Okay. Yeah. You know, listen, I opened the show talking about your- you know, six-time Boston Marathon and kayaking. So you are very unique in sense of your approach. But my curiosity is that you're relieved that you never thought you'd see this in your lifetime, but you chose to say, I'm going to be one of the doctors that is going to carry this torch forward. At 73 years old, why didn't you just say, this is, you know, I'm going to pass the torch on to the next generation? Why did you decide that this was going to be yet another calling in your life?
1: <laughs> because there was no torch. There was no torch to pass on to me. We had to light the torch. But it's actually more basic than that, I think. Um, I was still actively practicing. I mean, as far as I was concerned, I don't think there is a retirement age. Maybe at 81, I'm beginning to think there might be a retirement age. But, um, but at 73, man, no, it was not in my head at all that I was past my prime or past my best before date or
0: past anything. That wasn't my question because there's only a handful of doctors that really decided to take the accreditation and really move on it. So it wasn't like every doctor in in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s are saying, well, I've got a lot of time to practice. Therefore, I'm going to learn how to do this. You're so humble in this book, but you wanted this to be done right. Interesting, the people that you start... Your Yodas that kind of help you through this journey because it's a it's a whole new process. I mean, you got to get accredited, but Doctor Jeff Myers, for example, comes along.
1: Yeah. So the Supreme Court gave gave Parliament a year to kind of frame the legislation. So we had a year, and I thought everyone, and certainly Jeff Myers, when I started having my conversations with him, uh, because what I decided I needed a year to kind of really re-familiarize myself with what the best available treatments were around palliative care, hospice care, um, and, and things had really dramatically changed in the 45 years that I've been in practice. So we had these huge specialties now of palliative care, um, every service, you know, cardiac care, nephrology care, neurology care, had all been kind of hugely siloed and passed on to kind of these these towers of academia. And, and what family doctors have been left with is kind of basically navigating everything for their patients through this whole great system. And what I had seen over the years was that, and I'm in an urban practice, downtown urban practice, is that as people retired, they moved out. Um, as people aged, they moved into long-term care nursing homes. But everything was happening, or as they got sick, they moved into the clinics, the specialty clinics. If they got cancer, they moved into the cancer clinics and palliative care. And and we were left kind of being administrators. We were left being kind of like, you know, kind of the gatekeepers of the whole system, but not the major caregivers. So we were, I was losing my patients. When I started talking with Jeff Myers about, I wanted more information around just the new palliative care. What was it? What did it mean? What did it look like? He said, well, every family doctor does palliative care. I said, no, every family doctor doesn't do palliative care. So I I had fashioned my own program of sort of, Stopping doing obstetrics, and in the two days a week that I did obstetrics, I would then move over and do observe, observation of palliative care teams in the in the critical center in regional hospitals, and then finally in a hospice. And that's what I did for that year. It meant that for two days every week, I I ran with Jeff Myers, as he he was the uh, the lead, and he was the palliative care coordinator with the sort of advanced breast cancer program at Sunnybrook and the head of the palliative care team. And he ran literally from one end of that hospital to the other every day I was with him doing exquisite palliative care. And it is a complex field of kind of intensive patient-directed medical care. Then I moved out to the region. Then I moved back into a community service with Tammy Lentner. And then I went out to Grimsby to the to the hospice there.
0: You describe long-term care facilities as lots of wonderful people, but often smacked of warehousing. And I think we all went through COVID and sort of opened our eyes to what might be out there. You know, what needs to change in that area? Given that we've got finite resources, infinite demand, what can we do better so that we're putting the human back in humanity?
1: I think we have to acknowledge that, that we have never, we have not supported it for the last 40 years. I mean, we've supported acute care. No matter what facility you've got, the demand is always going to be overwhelming. There's always going to be more need than can actually be supplied. So, I mean, look at physicians, physician shortages in Ontario right now. So we thought we would have one in 20, um, you know, we're a 20% deficit in family doctors by 2030. And now we're saying, no, actually, it's going to be much worse than that. It'll be 25%. There'll be one in four Ontarians that won't access a primary care physician by 2030. So our timelines keep shortening and our, and our needs keep expanding. But I think the, the bottom line of all of this is that, that we simply have to know that for 45 years, we have never funded long-term care adequately. And I think it's not a question of, well, the demand for acute care has always been more. We have never paid attention to what aged people need. So so this mix of of what is publicly funded versus what is privately serviced uh, care has kind of sprung up as these two sort of great arms. But when you look at COVID, really, the publicly funded long-term care homes did better than the privately funded for some very obvious reasons, which still have to do with staffing and still have to do with sort of basically what did the publicly funded long-term care homes provide? They provided stability of staff. So the staff weren't doing two and three jobs on on the side to kind of make their ends meet. So we've never supported the staffing of long-term care homes adequately. So it is both both a question of what do you provide and how do you service what you provide? And I think if people could get back to some pretty pretty fundamental and basic concepts and say, start there. And, and in fact, one of the things I see, one of the great movements I see that I think is going to really maybe work, certainly in smaller communities and um, in smaller regions away from the big city centers, is that as all of our aging churches kind of lose their congregations and have got all of this property, as they begin to convert some of what is their church property to hospice facilities, long-term care facilities, daycare centers, uh, a way to kind of combine a community living space. So I think it's going to be a tremendous community drive to say, who is our population that we're serving? And I think in a lot of the smaller communities, the elder population is who they're serving. And it's how we're going to service that population. So I think go back, don't go big, go down small, look at what a community needs and what a community can provide and what a community can kind of do to kind of fund its own care in place and keep care where it needs to be.
0: We return, we look back at a few of her extraordinary patients and at the end of their life journey, but a journey where they're surrounded by so much love. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipso survey sponsored by RBC Royal Trust reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royal trust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden.
1: You know, there's seven stories. There are seven patient stories in this book. Five of the seven had attempted suicide, but they didn't attempt suicide because it was easy. They attempted suicide because they were alone. And the minute, the minute you were able to do that for them, people
2: sort of settled down. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My guest today is Dr. Jean Marmarillo. She co-authored a book called The Last Doctor, Lessons in Living from the Front Lines, and Medical Assistance in Dying. Her insights about the end of life are insights that are truly worth listening to. I want to talk about a couple of other of the patients that you really bring to life, the emotional part. And I think you said it earlier that this is not so much a prescription because everybody has to do it in their own way. But I really felt for Ted. And you're so poetic in describing the circumstances, but there's no fairy lights. It's a lack of emotion. No family members are present. His mattress is on the floor because his condo was already being emptied. I'm sure it was, as you say, efficient, but to me, it felt achingly cold. What did you take away from that circumstance in terms of the environment where made was going to take effect?
1: It's not what you want or wish for people. I always feel that Death is going to come to everybody, you know, and if you actually know that you are controlling the moment of your death and that you are present to say goodbye. And people say, I don't I don't want people around me because it'll upset them. I say it will upset them more if they know that that you did this and did not give them a chance to say, I will be too upset. I can't come because most people are never too upset. Most people Want to kind of come and be present. Um, even if it's not present to kind of hold your hand and see you out, but be present as witness. I mean, I think we, we lose so much of, of what connection is to each other when most of it is simply just to be, to be there because that's what matters is that people share that kind of common ground. I've seen a lot of people who, who basically have been alone. Uh, or have had nobody. And I always find it tragic that there is no one to signal that this life has meant something. Because I, I think every life means something. So I always hope that people will have that chance to know that this is, this is an opportunity. This is a privilege. Um, this, is, this is an honor. To kind of know that you are honoring somebody as they exit. Because this is their chosen time. And that you can do it and say that you're, because you're there, that it matters. That their life as it is now and as it will end matters to everybody who's around. I, I think that's a treasure. I think it's a gift.
0: I'm trying hard to always be in the patient's shoes, but there's times where I want to give you a hug. <laughs> and one of them is when you describe Joe. He's diabetic. He's divorced twice, but he's still friends with his ex. His retirement dreams are shattered when he has to take care of his mom. He buys her a cat for company and then he gets ALS. And after his mom dies, the cat turns on him, starts scratching him. Infections are dangerous. Everything's happening to this individual at this perfectly paved journey through life and golfing and everything else that he wanted to do. The night before you're going to honor Joe's wishes, you have a nightmare. And I was fascinated by... For someone that's, as you said, this this very professional doctor, this sapling that grew into this oak with your training, the nightmares you're just not ready, you don't have the right syringes, and everything's going on. And then after you do the procedure, Joe's sister comes up to you and, and she asks how you are, and you start crying.
1: Tony, my feeling is kind of roaring through as you talk. Um, it was his niece? it was it was uh, Joe's niece, actually. It has always struck me. That it's only the softness, it's, it's when the softness comes out, boom, that I can respond. As long as I'm doing the job, I'm doing the job. As long as somebody is challenging me, I will fight back. As long as somebody defies or somebody says, you know, you've got to do that better, I, I will rise. But when somebody just says, are you okay, then I'm not, then it opens up a whole other realm.
0: I picture you at this conference and on stage is Dr. Andrea Froelich and she's not a medical doctor. She describes herself as a professional doctor watcher and you're kind of rolling your eyes a little bit going, here she is. You got to take care of yourself. But she starts off by saying, well, I'm going to throw a few grenades at you. And then her words take you down because you realize that as much as you like to tuck all of these things in little drawers in that brain of yours, there is consequences to be a doctor that administers made, isn't there?
1: I had actually tried to address that. I mean, because I, it, if Andrea didn't didn't bring it up. She brought it home. It was like she hit the ball out of the park for me. But but it had been there. It had been swilling around um, for at least a year, maybe longer. Um, and it was swilling around 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 the people who you feel you didn't do enough for. Uh, or that you hadn't kind of explored enough of their opportunities to sort of see if it was the right thing, because ending a life, taking a life, um, has a has a moral burden to it. Uh, so when when people question, you know, whether providing MAID is is a right or a wrong thing, and people who are doing it are doing it because we feel we are honoring our patients. We also know that we do it at a cost. and The cost is, have you done enough already before this so that this person hasn't got to this point in their life that they're suffering grievously and irremediably? Um, that's always the balance that a maid assessor and provider is kind of living with when they are seeing people um, and hearing their stories, and that's why I really like to hear the story. And that's why over the years, the first thing I have learned, the one of the soundest things I have learned is that I don't have to rush listening to this story. I think... One of the things I learned with Jeff was that I should fashion my template so that I can do a MAID assessment. In the same time, it would take a palliative care doctor to do a palliative care assessment because I kind of put them in the same frame of mind. I say, you have to gather a lot of stuff together uh, in a limited time to understand what you need to do for this patient. So I had that in my head. If a palliative care doctor, a good one, an excellent one like Jeff Myers, uh, can do this in an hour. You can do it in an hour too. I've softened. I've softened that demand on myself. Gratefully, now I'll take at least an hour and a half. <laughs> and, and I and I know I can come back um, and and go beyond and go go deeper and go longer. And if I know that I can't because my time is too short and because the patient is in too much decline, then I want to know there is palliative care there. I need to know. That if this decline comes even faster than I think we have time to kind of go through everything we need to, I need to know there is good palliative
0: care. Two final questions is the first is tell my listeners about the knapsack.
1: My knapsack now? Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, once uh, this draft, this comes right from Andrea. I, when she brought that bloody backpack out, I, I just thought, oh, groan, here we go. Because I think the first thing she pulled out was a scarf. She's a, she's a wonderful performer. And she had this big scar she pulled out. But when she brought out the shell, the little fragile shell that her son had given her, that actually had some meaning for me and I connected. So when I when I understood the backpack theme uh, and what it really meant to me, and I, and I think I say in the book, I'm the queen of backpacks. I have 27 backpacks in my house. I I have backpacked everywhere. I backpacked on the Appalachian Trail. I carried my house on my back for months. Backpacks are me, you know. I put everything I need into a backpack, but I hadn't done one for made. So the first thing I put in, um, I've taken up wood turning, um, and I, and I love. I can spend hours and hours turning a tiny, tiny little piece of wood, you know. <laughs> destroying a whole block of wood to get a tiny little piece of wood. I like lidded bowls, Um, and sometimes I blow the lid, and that really is kind of like the end of your project when you blow the lid. So I ended up with this wonderfully perfectly turned base, and I had blown the lid, and I thought, I haven't got the lid for this perfectly turned base, so this little base is in my backpack because it's half of perfection but you can blow the other half. So that was kind of the first thing I put in. And then I started with my journal of poetry and pictures and things that really, I would, I would call this the the poetry book of of life and living and death and dying. It has everything that has ever mattered, um, including an article that came from Elizabeth Renzetti on Don't Fear the Reaper about her mom. Elizabeth Renzetti was, was my patient who came in to tell me her story about she was going to write a book about uh, midlife women and their changes. And the, and the model she was going to use was a backpack. And when she came in to tell me that story, I ended up falling apart and telling her about my backpack story. I took over my entire patient and I said, it's not about you. It's about me. Listen to me. It was (laughs) the word. At the end of half an hour, I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Elizabeth. I said, why are you here? (laughs) But it was like, oh yeah. So yeah, so that's that's it. My, My backpack is full and growing. My
0: final question stems from one of the most potent observations in your book. We can't just teach doctors how to do MAID. We have to teach them how to survive doing it. But when you retire... And that knapsack with the wood bowl and the poetry are put on a shelf. Do you think you will have survived doing MAID?
1: I'm certainly much more at peace in terms of sort of my my moral dilemmas. And certainly part of it is knowing that you need your own resources and your own resilience. I mean, people say, uh, and there's now a massive curriculum um, that CAMIT has put together about MAID, Eight, eight big topics. Um, there's sort of like, you know, two hours, you know, online and then a chance to kind of meet, you know, in-person face-to-face across the country, because everything that happens at CAMA happens, doesn't happen in Ontario, happens across the country. But, uh, but you got to remember Ontario, Ontario's got 16 million people. So, you know, there's going to be a lot more made and a lot more people needing made in Ontario than anywhere else in the country, even if the percentages in Quebec and BC look a little different than the rest of the world. But um, people will need to know that there are resources. And I think we have now got an expanse of resources that we did not have uh, when we started. So I think even in terms of looking at the curriculum, when you look at how to do a complex interview, uh, or an interview for a complex patient, or how to kind of access palliative services for people, and palliative services online. There are now resources that are now embedded in in these kind of portals that were just not there before, and they are robust and they are rich, uh, and they are wonderful. And I think CAMAP itself as a as a portal, as an online service for physicians who are doing it has always been kind of one of the great resources to go to in terms of support.
0: So Dr. Jean Marmor, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And my thing is called Chatter That Matters, and you've used the word matters a number of times. So I'm gonna bring it in. The first thing is personifying matters. I liked how you opened it up and said, the only way we can make intangibles, tangibles, demystify is to bring patient stories to life. And I think in your book, you do that so wonderfully well. And it made me realize that made is a choice to be embraced uh, and not feared. So I, I I thank you for that. I think anybody reading your book will realize that. The second one is just a sense of, you know, doctors can't show anxiety or fear. And it made me realize that how tough it is to be in the medical profession, that you can't say, oops, and you have to be calm and you have to compartmentalize. And you're only allowed to cry, as you said, when this, when it's time for the softness to come out. And then the last one is that you are half a bull. I think that that wood carving represents who you are, that you're always looking for perfection. I mean, whether it's your six marathons, your, your kayaking, your adventures. I would imagine, I have no idea if there's a heaven, but if your dad's looking down, he's going to say, I'm sure glad you were a lousy housekeeper because you brought so much to this planet. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Batters.
1: Lovely. Lovely to chat with you too, Tony.
0: Joining me now is a repeat guest. Her name's Leanne Kaufman. She's the president and CEO of RBC Royal Trust. Leanne, welcome.
2: It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Tony.
0: Leanne, Dr. Jean Marmaria, what an incredible story. When the Supreme Court legislates made medical assistance in dying, even though she's long past retirement age, she signs up for it because she says, I want to be a doctor that helps people at the end of their life. I've seen too much pain.
2: Wow, incredible.
0: And what I thought of you for the show is I remember hearing one of your talks about the end of life and how emotional it is, but at the same time, you have to deal with financial matters. And though it might seem crass at that moment, it's incredibly important that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed.
2: It is incredibly important and, and it does sound crass, but, but I think it needs to become a normalized conversation because it has emotion to it as well. People who don't get their affairs in order are leaving a mess in many cases for the for the loved ones that they're leaving behind so if we we now start talking this as talking about this planning as an act of love right for those that you're leaving behind because you want to leave things as easy as possible for them with as clear intention as possible it's not going to preclude confusion and it certainly doesn't erase the grief um It might still drum up old wounds. There may still be family strife that happens even when everything is well documented. But you can go a long way in helping out your spouse, your kids, whoever it is you're leaving behind by just taking the time to do this planning and more importantly, documenting it appropriately, appropriately and legally.
0: Leanne, what's the best way to facilitate these conversations? I know firsthand so many families that have been ripped apart after somebody died because they didn't feel they're getting their fair share or they objected to the choices that were being made. I guess it really does come down to choice.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people don't talk about it, and they don't talk about what's going to happen, and and in some cases why choices have been made. They maybe don't talk to the people that they're appointing in those executor or power of attorney. If if we talk about you know people losing capacity and someone having to step into their shoes, they don't always talk to the person that they're appointing. So expectations are not understood, and intentions are not understood, and then it leaves people open to put their own slant on things. This is also where we sometimes see people not giving enough thought to who it is that they are appointing in those roles what the impact of that might be on the others in their family or in their circle and frankly sometimes you know just leaving it up to chance ends up really in these terrible situations with families being broken up like like you're talking about like you're uh, like the friend of yours.
0: another piece of content you're involved with this time I think you were interviewing David Shelton, the wealthy barber. And he came out as a champion, an advocate saying, if you're going to appoint an executor, don't make it your 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 parents or your best friend or a family member, hire a professional.
2: Well, for sure. I mean, it's the business I'm in, but I do also fundamentally um, agree. I, I see more estate situations than your average person, let's be honest. And so I have a, a, a greater frame of reference than most, as do my colleagues. But again, this comes back to when you're thinking of using a professional, it's because maybe the people that are in your circle don't have the right skill set to do the job. Maybe it's going to create family disharmony or has the risk of creating family disharmony. Maybe the siblings don't get along already. So having a neutral third party there not only brings the professionalism and making sure that it gets done in the way that it's supposed to get done, but it also creates neutrality. And like you said, an unbiased third party, sometimes it's, it's a neutral third party that everyone can rally around getting irritated with, but at least it's not going to disrupt the family right at the end of the day. And that's what, that's what really matters.
0: Are there resources out there, a workbook or something that at least family members can start having this conversation? So when they go to see somebody professional, at least some of their ducks are in order.
2: Yeah. There, there's certainly resources available online. We have our own version of these, you know, planning workbooks, even a light touch version. Um, within RBC but talking to your financial advisor or if you already work with a lawyer talking to your lawyer about how to get started it is a great idea to do a bit of homework on your own and have turned your mind to some of these things so you walk into an initial planning conversation with a little bit of you know thought already given to some of the issues it doesn't mean you need to have everything worked out I know one of the biggest Points of inertia or reasons that people can't move forward is because some of these decision points become the barrier that they don't know who they want to name as guardian for their kids, they don't know which charities they want to benefit, whatever whatever it is. Um, but having some of these, you know, early planning conversations, I, I can't point you to a specific workbook that's generally used in the public realm, but. For sure, there's lots of resources available if you uh, if you start looking at estate planning
0: guides. I have to believe that when choices are clear, when direction is clear, then these financial matters are easier to address. And in doing so, maybe allowing the emotional side to take its proper place.
2: I think having a really clear roadmap from the deceased is important, right? I mean, there in an estate generally there there may not be a lot of points of true discretionary decision-making if the planning has done, has been done very robustly. And so, you know, that can help remove, can can neutralize some of that stuff. So if you've left very clear instructions about what you want your funeral to look like, what you want to be done with your remains, how you want assets distributed and when, you know, you you haven't left a lot of room for argument between your siblings. So this is again why it's important, I think, that you work with someone who understands what these various inflection points or potential points of conflict might be and helps guide you in, in making those instructions. Not all of these things have to show up in the will or in the power of attorney document in a formal place. They can be in a side letter of wishes or some sort of memorandum that you leave to your loved ones, to your executor, to your power of attorney, but at least it's your voice. It's your expression of wishes. And, it, and it, it just really takes away, I think, a lot of that, what would she or he have wanted? And then that's where personal opinion of those left behind comes into play.
0: Leanne Kaufman, thank you again for being on Chatter That Matters.
2: Uh, I always appreciate the opportunity, Tony, and and, and you ask great questions chatter that matters has been a presentation of rbc
0: it's tony chapman thanks for listening and let's chat soon